Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the lad, Mary, Bessie, James the vain, Charlie, Charlie, James again, William and Mary. Yes, we come to a pair of joint rulers, and they're always presented to us as William and Mary, rather than as two individual people. So for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to split them in two and particularly give Mary a bit of space of her own, which she deserves. In finding out more about Mary, I've come to like her quite a lot. And in finding out more about William, I've come to dislike him sort of inversely to how much I like Mary. So as I say, they are, they are joint rulers. And I always thought, well, they were our only joint rulers. But actually, technically, the original Mary, Bloody Mary, Mary I, Henry VIII's daughter, had a joint monarchy with Philip of Spain. And he did come over to England, albeit only occasionally, and got involved in helping run the country, which didn't stop Elizabeth I from going to war with him when she took the throne. But William and Mary only ever seemed to be mentioned as a pair, a partnership, in this country at least. The coins had the profiles of both of them on. And they both had a claim to the English throne through Stuart bloodline. You know, we've looked before at how complicated this is because of the close intermarrying and the fact that there were two pairs of William and Marys in Holland, the Republic of Holland. So just to remind you of that before we get into it and remind myself of it. <laughs> Charles I's daughter, Mary Stuart, not 
Queen Mary II of England, she comes in a bit later. But Charles I's daughter, Mary, married this Dutch prince, William II of Orange. And they had a son, William III of Orange, who is the William of our William and Mary that we'll be talking about in the next two episodes. So he's Charles I's grandson. Meanwhile, Charles's son, James, James II, decides to confuse things further by calling his own daughter Mary. So she's Charles I's granddaughter. And she marries William III of Orange and becomes Mary II of England. They are our power couple, William and Mary. So they are very closely related. They're cousins. So I would advise you to dig out a family tree and look at it um, if you're finding that a little bit complicated. So having put all that together, I'm going to dismantle it now and focus on Mary, Mary II. I'm going to go with her first because she's always paired with William as William and Mary. They're not presented to us as Mary and William, as perhaps they should be, as she was the one who had the senior right to take the throne. She was born in 1662. And she was only really on the throne of England for four years. So a short, sad life. And it is a sad life because, as I say, I've come to like Mary. And I think had she lived, she may well have been one of our best remembered monarchs. But as she had such a short life and as she has always bolted together with William, she's perhaps one of those monarchs who people don't know very much about. So she was the eldest child of James, Duke of York. When she was born, he was Duke of York. He went on to become James II. Uh, and she was the daughter of his first wife, Anne Hyde. And I've read in some places that she was named after Mary, Queen of Scots, and in others that she was named after Mary, Princess of Orange, that being Charles I's daughter. And uh, I think probably the latter is correct. But I think it shows that there are some significant royal Marys in her backstory. She was a pretty young woman. Actually, on, the, on that front, it's very interesting. I've touched on this before. The idea how uh, standards of beauty change over the years and representations of beauty of like, what is the ideal woman? And you can sort of chart this through the depictions of idealised feminine figures like the Virgin Mary or Venus or Greek goddesses which are obviously presented to us as this is the most beautiful type of woman. It's the same same with men. We get the same changing standards. Um, and there was very much a, a Stuart look in the paintings that are done in this era. And you, and you can never know. You think, do they look like this? Or at the time, is this what the standard of beauty is? There's very much a vogue in the Stuart times for the sort of high forehead, rounded forehead, round face, small lips, a long nose and these sort of slightly bulging eyes, which seem to show a touch of thyroid problems. So it's often hard to separate the person from the ideals of the time. Actually, talking about eyes, Mary did have problems with her eyes through her life. She suffered from migraines, which made it hard for her to to read and to concentrate a lot of the time. She had the sort of standard upper class female education at the time, not heavily intellectual. A lot of singing and dancing and playing of the harpsichord. But she seems to have been um, 
bright. She seems to have been a very intelligent woman. And the question of how she should be educated was something of a burning question um, because her father outed himself as a Catholic and yet to keep himself safe, he gave Mary a Protestant upbringing. He didn't want to say to people, oh, look, we're all going to be Catholics now. And obviously when Mary was young, this was before James had declared himself as a Catholic. Mary's mother, Anne, who died of breast cancer when Mary was only 10 or 11 years old, also had displayed Catholic leanings towards the end. So they were very careful in the royal household to present to the outer world this idea that, no, 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 we're all Protestants. And obviously government had a strong say in this. We've got stronger and stronger parliaments with each monarch. And a string of Anglican bishops were entrusted to her education the Bishop of Winchester, the Bishop of London, the Archdeacon of Exeter, who instructed her in the principles of the Church of England, which must have been a lot of fun, the ideal education for a small child. Now, we had a quote from Samuel Pepys in the last episode about James and how Pepys was sort of slightly surprised that James tried to have a, an ordinary family life at home and to relate to his kids as an ordinary father. And I assumed that meant that James's daughters, Mary and Anne, were brought up entirely at the royal household. But Pepys must have been talking about when Mary was very small, because after her mother, Anne, died, she was sent to Richmond to be brought up by a governess, Lady Frances Villiers. But Mary does seem to have been happy there. She was treated by Lady Frances as one of her own children and made good friends with Lady Villiers' daughters, particularly Elizabeth Villiers. And that does seem to have been a fairly happy time of Mary's life. But it was while Mary was a young girl that a curious incident, episode, well, it went on for a few years, actually, happened. She became slightly obsessed with an older female friend. She was called Frances Apsley. And Mary started a sort of adolescent romance with her and sent her loads and loads of letters expressing her love, expressing her devotion. I mean, for instance, when she was 13, she wrote, and I wish you could see this letter because the spelling in it is absolutely appalling. Spelling seemed to be a, a sort of slightly loose concept at the time. And a lot of letters, particularly royal letters, have sort of almost phonetic spelling at times. Um, it reminded me a lot of when my own boys were learning to write. Spelling knife as nif, for instance, N-I-F, and why not? So anyway, Mary wrote in this particular letter, I love you with more zeal than any lover can. I love you with a love that ne'er was known by man. I have for you excess of friendship. That's spelt F-R-I-A-N-D. Friendship, more of love than any woman can for woman. And more love than ever the constantest love had for his mistress. You are loved more than can be expressed by your ever-obedient wife, very affectionate friend, humble servant, to kiss the ground where one you go, to be your dog in a string, your fish in a net, your bird in a cage, your humble trout. Um, I must remember that as a term of endearment. I am your humble trout, madam. And so she's sort of positioning herself as the wife or the mistress of this other girl, Frances. Now, in modern sensibilities, people are always trying to look back and dig into people's sexuality. 
I mean, the other interesting thing actually about this correspondence is that Mary's younger sister, Anne, joined in and she positioned herself as the husband in some of these letters. And we'll obviously come on to Anne in a couple of episodes time. Anne, who's been brought to wider attention by the film The Favourite, in which she is very much shown to be in the film um, a lesbian. Was Mary displaying lesbian tendencies here or was this a sort of adolescent crush? Was it to a certain extent a sort of play acting? She didn't know any boys, so she projected all these sort of romantic ideas onto Francis. Uh, Francis did write back and, and went along with it up to a point and then she got fed up with the whole thing and said, Mary, I think you need to stop sending me these letters. Certainly through later life, Mary didn't seem to form any particularly close bonds with women. But this is a curious and interesting and humanising part of, of Mary's life. We can really get a glimpse of her as, as a young girl here. So as she grew up, she became particularly fond of dancing and even performed in a ballet at court, Callisto or the Chaste Nymph. She also got involved in the other sort of typical pursuits of a lady of leisure. She liked to play cards. She liked to do needlework, uh, embroidering all the curtains in the royal bedchambers, for instance. And she was very interested in gardening. And, you know, this is gardening on a grand scale of organising the layout of grounds at royal palaces. She worked with Sir Christopher Wren planning the gardens at Hampton Court and uh, Kensington Palace. But the key thing was, because James didn't have any surviving male children, Mary was brought up as next in line to the throne. From a very early age, she was a very valuable marriage partner. When James died, she would come to the throne. So she's very useful to James to use as a political and diplomatic tool to marry her into whichever royal family in Europe he wants to get closest to, be that the Spanish royal family, the French or the Dutch. And not just useful to James, because when Mary was a child, her uncle, Charles II, was still on the throne. So he had a big say in all of this. And from quite early on, Mary knew that she wasn't going to be allowed to marry the stable boy. So we've already seen how Mary's aunt, who I'll just call Mary Stuart, had married into the Dutch royal family, her husband being William II. And the Dutch gradually emerged as the strongest, safest bet. And when Mary was only 15 years old, Charles II announced that she was going to marry the next William of Orange, William III, who is in his late 20s. Mary's father, James, argued against the idea, but Charles bullied him into accepting the marriage deal. Mary burst into tears and, according to the diary of Dr Edward Lake, wept all that afternoon and the following day. In fact, she probably wept for weeks. We've seen how she had this romantic nature. She would have loved to marry some sort of golden-haired, heroic princeling. But she'd met William. He'd been over to kind of check her out and be checked out by the royal court. And he was not a prepossessing figure. He was shorter than her. She was tall for the age for a woman. She was five feet eleven. And he was only five foot six and a half. He had blackened teeth, a hooked nose. 
terrible asthma, prone to coughing fits and nosebleeds. Mary's sister Anne called him Caliban, Caliban being the monster from Shakespeare's Tempest. Anne also called him that Dutch abortion. She didn't really like him. Mary didn't really like him at first. In fact, nobody seems to have really liked him. But maybe I'm wrong. In the next episode, I'm going to look more closely at William. I'm seeing all of this episode from Mary's point of view. And so she sees this horrible little man. (laughs) And he was quite cold and rude to her. He made no bones about the fact that if he was going to marry her, it would be for political reasons, not for love. The Dutch are involved in a sort of war for survival. At one moment, they're fighting the Spanish who are established in Flanders between France and Holland. And the next moment, they're fighting King Louis XIV of France because Spain's power is dwindling. France's power is growing all the time under Louis. And they are definitely and very resolutely Catholic. It's during this period that the French Catholics come down most heaviest on the French Protestants, the Huguenots, and a lot of them flee or are kicked out of France. Many end up in Holland, many end up in London. And William of Orange very much needs help and support and money in his war against the French. So as he sees it, A marriage to Mary would be very beneficial to him. When James dies, Mary and her husband would come to the throne. And as far as he sees it, if he was her husband, he would be king and she would do whatever he told her. So Mary is in tears. She's not really looking forward to any of this. In one of her letters, she had written to Francis Villiers, In two or three years, men are always weary of their wives and look for mistresses as soon as they can get them. And after they married, this is exactly what William did. And to rub salt into the wound, he took as his mistress Mary's childhood friend, Elizabeth Villiers. At one point, quite early on in their marriage in Holland, Mary was tipped off to William's behaviour and waited to catch him coming out of Elizabeth Villiers' room in the middle of the night. And she confronted him about this. And he said something like, no, we had some some late night business to discuss. And kind of walked off. And Mary, as people often do in these relationships, she sort of accepted his explanation. It was perhaps easier and less distressing to accept the lie. But I've jumped ahead. The actual wedding took place at nine o'clock at night in Mary's bedchamber at St James's Palace in London. And significantly, it wasn't her father James who gave her away. It was her uncle Charles, as, let's face it, the whole thing was his idea. And at this time, the royals had what was known as a bedding ceremony, which was very popular throughout Europe. This was a way of publicly making sure that the wedding was consummated. Originally, the close family and the village elders or whatnot would actually stand around the bed and watch. And that still was happening in parts of Europe. But the ceremony by this point in England, certainly at the royal court, had become formalised, ritualised. Now it was enough to simply draw curtains discreetly around the bed. I'm not sure that the couple were even expected to start banging the headboard and yelping and moaning. 
And it was Charles who drew the curtains round Mary and William's bed. Seems he was very nice about the whole thing and very jolly. But he was making no bones that this was a good political alliance for him. Mary wasn't really allowed any say in the proceedings. And William gave her quite a lot of jewels and an allowance, even if he didn't give her his heart and basically treated her with cold indifference. And so then they made plans to set off back for the Netherlands. Uh, These plans were slightly delayed because Mary's sister Anne fell ill with smallpox at St James's Palace. Anne was lucky enough to survive. Smallpox was a big problem at the time. Both of William of Orange's parents had been killed by smallpox. And neither commoner nor royal was immune. I mean, we saw how when Elizabeth I was quite young, um, she came down with smallpox and almost died, but managed to survive. But eventually they do arrive in Holland to a magnificent reception. But there was a bit of awkwardness and Mary didn't get off to a great start. She was seen as being a bit stiff and snooty and standoffish. But she later admitted that she really didn't know what she was doing. She was only 15 and didn't know what the court protocol was in Holland. The English court had perhaps been more stuffy and formal. But she was a fast learner and soon got to know the ropes. And she did become very popular in Holland. Perhaps because her husband was such an unprepossessing figure. And although when she first arrived she didn't really like it there, she was homesick. She didn't understand the customs particularly well. Um, She did grow to enjoy Holland and to enjoy life in Holland. She managed to live a fairly quiet, simple life there. And she carried on doing the things she enjoyed, playing cards, needlework, gardening. And she slowly did grow more affectionate towards William. Although it's quite hard to separate this sort of idealised, fantastical, romantic nature that she had, this sort of daydreaming idea of love and how she actually felt. But she sort of convinced herself and others that she was madly and deeply in love with William and entirely devoted to him. And perhaps it was just easier to behave like that and to write letters to people about all that than it was to say, actually, I'm a bit miserable with him. Mary imported from England a string of Church of England priests to be her chaplains and It is through them we get a glimpse of her life there. And they, all of them, said that she wasn't really very happy. One of them wrote that the princess's heart is ready to break, and yet she every day counterfeits the greatest joy. The prince hath infallibly made her his absolute slave. Now, William discovered that this particular chaplain was writing this kind of letter and booted him out of the country. But Mary and William did have a physical relationship And she did get pregnant, but unfortunately miscarried in 1678. And the same thing happened again a year later. And after the second miscarriage, she never conceived again. There's various speculation about this. Possibly she had been damaged some way by the second miscarriage, or she had suffered from some kind of infection. So perhaps there was a medical reason why she wasn't able to conceive again. Maybe she decided it was just too much, something she couldn't cope with. Maybe she didn't want to sleep with William anymore. But some people, and I didn't talk about this in the episode on James II, but some people have speculated that he had syphilis and may have passed it on 
to his daughters. Now, it's one of the themes through this series of trying not to diagnose people from several hundred years distance. I can't say either way whether James had syphilis. But certainly, uh, Mary didn't conceive again. And Anne suffered through her life through an appalling number of, of miscarriages. I must check the number for when we get on to her episode. But she conceived about 20 children. One boy survived until he was about 11, but that was it. So Mary and Anne weren't able to do what was required of royal wives, which was to produce as many children as possible. Mary had been educated as a Protestant and she kept firmly Protestant through her life. She was a devout supporter of the Church of England and that led to her falling out with James. He barely visited her after she left England and they largely became estranged. Even when King Charles II died and Mary's father James took the throne, Mary didn't really return to England. She stayed with William in Holland. Mary's father, James, starts sending her all these Catholic books and texts, trying to convert her. And although Mary reads them and is interested in them, she sticks to her faith. And she remains heir to the throne until her father remarries to an Italian princess, Mary of Medina. And they have a son. This now means that James has a male heir to the throne and that that son is probably Catholic. And this leads to his ultimate undoing. A conspiracy theory starts doing the rounds that this child was not his, that Mary of Medina had been pretending to be pregnant and a commoner's baby had been smuggled into the royal bedchamber in a bedpan and substituted um, so that James had his own Catholic male heir and that the staunchly Protestant Mary and her staunchly Protestant husband William would not take the throne. And it's at this point that Mary has her final and most complete falling out with her father. She believes this conspiracy. So how could my father do this trickery? And she's also now no longer in line to the throne. But she has the power of her faith and she really thinks that James has gone down the wrong route being a Catholic, as do the ruling elite in England, as well as the common people. They want to get rid of this Catholic monarch. And they've been talking to William of Orange about this for some time, whether he would come over and be joint ruler with Mary in England. And this is what happens. Eventually, William sets sail with a fleet. Mary goes down to see him off and sort of performs this whole act of, oh my goodness, I'm going to stare at the far horizon until he has disappeared. I can't bear for my William to leave. She's sort of behaving like a sort of heroine out of a Victorian romantic novel. And again, it looks like she's doing this to try and convince herself that this is what she actually feels. It goes wrong when a storm forces the fleet to come back and they have to go through it all over again a few days later. So eventually William's ships set sail from Holland and it's a huge fleet, far bigger than the Spanish Armada, at least twice the size, packed with Dutch soldiers and German mercenaries. This is an invasion force. And when it gets to the narrowest point of the English Channel, the 20 miles between Dover in England and Calais in France, the sailors in the ships on the north side of the fleet can salute Dover, while the sailors in the ships on the south side can salute Calais. William is ready for war. 
He lands his troops safely in the West Country and marches on London. What is King James going to do? Crucially, his key commander, John Churchill, the future Duke of Marlborough, deserts him and switches sides. James strategically surrenders. He realises he doesn't have the support to fight William, who turns a blind eye and lets him escape. And James flees to the continent. And the popular story goes, and this can't be proved either way, that he threw the royal seal, the great seal of state, into the Thames as he ran off. Once England is secure, Mary is allowed to follow her husband over and they are crowned at Westminster Abbey. Despite having been invited to England, William is a pretty unpopular character. He's a foreigner, so people don't much like that. He's a Dutchman. Um, and very soon rumours go around that he's probably also a homosexual. But a legal document is made up, the Declaration of Rights, which states that William and Mary will be king and queen, and he will not be a powerless consort. He will be the senior partner. Mary seemed quite happy to go along with this. It would give the people a sense of security, having a man in charge. Uh, my opinion, she wrote in her memoirs, has ever been that women should not meddle in government. But that wasn't how things turned out, because William, as I say, had really gone through all this purely so that he could become king of England and he could use England in his fight against the French. In this Declaration of Rights, he had sworn to stick to the laws and customs. He agreed to govern according to the statutes agreed on in Parliament. This was a change. In the past, royalty hadn't sworn such a clear allegiance to the government and so William had to agree to all these things, but it was very much a coronation of convenience. He's sort of going, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, yeah, just sign it. What he wants is the money and the army and the support. And he's away from England for a long time during this early part of his reign, leaving Mary to rule in his stead. He's going off, first of all, to put down uprisings in Ireland where James comes over and raises this Catholic army and William defeats him at the Battle of the Boyne. He then has to deal with rebellion in Scotland and he goes up there and puts that down rather ruthlessly, which we'll look at in the next episode. But he's also spending a lot of time back in Holland organising this war against the French. So Mary is left to rule and at first she really doesn't know what to do. She's not used to being at the English court. She's not up to date on all the latest laws and rules. William puts in place this sort of ruling council, a council of nine people, who he reckons will probably run the country and, and Mary will just be a figurehead. But Mary, as we saw before, she is a bright young woman and she very quickly learns the ropes and she very quickly makes a judgment on the nine people of her council five of whom are Tories and four of whom are Whigs. So they can't really agree amongst themselves. And she describes them variously as weak and obstinate, lazy. A couple of them she dismisses as mad. One of a temper I can never like. Another as a very honest but weak man. And the ninth, Edward Russell, though he was recommended to me for sincerity, yet he had his faults. So... She very quickly learns to sort of divide and rule. She realises that by 
privately working with the different factions. She can get them to do what she wants to do. And she is described by one courtier as another Queen Elizabeth. And maybe she would have gone on to be that if she'd had longer. People like her as a person. She's very popular. But the supporters of King James are always trying to undermine her. Now, these supporters are known as the Jacobites because James's name in Latin in the Bible is Jacobus. So the Jacobites are constantly trying to get rid of William and Mary. Now, we saw how James had had this son, also called James, who may or may not, let's face it, he probably wasn't, smuggled into the royal bedchamber in a bedpan, but he should have been king. He was the oldest male heir. But because of these rules coming in to ban Catholics from taking the throne, he was not allowed to take the throne. He becomes known as the Old Pretender. After James is defeated at the Battle of the Boyne and never really comes back, allegiance is switched to his son, James. And the Jacobites are always putting out these stories about Mary and they're vilifying her for turning against her own father. She deposed her own father from the throne and took it from him. And Mary, it has to be said, never really recovers from the guilt of this. She, she does feel terrible about what she did, even though she was pretty much estranged from her father. At least it was a bloodless coup. So this seems to be a perfectly amicable setup. William can charge off about the place around the world, leading armies, and Mary can get on with the business of actually running England. But she's only been on the throne for a while when in the run-up to Christmas 1693, she comes down with a fever and a rash. The hope is at first that it might just be measles, although even that is a fairly serious disease. But by Christmas, it's clear that she has got smallpox and she is rapidly declining. Archbishop Tennyson visits her and tells her that she's dying and that he needs to perform the last rites. It's a pretty awful death, smallpox. It's, it's like dying of the plague in many ways. So poor Mary has a terrible end. And the Jacobites are crowing. Look, this evil woman has been punished for the way she treated her father. This is the judgment of God upon her. But Archbishop Tennyson says, no, no, natural causes had their share of this evil. But it was the immorality, the sin of the nation, which hastened it as a judgment. It was the licentiousness at the court of Charles and James um, that, that had somehow sort of infected Mary. And she was paying for her family's sins rather than for her own. That's a load of old nonsense. She had smallpox. That is not a religious or a moral judgment. Mary had asked that her funeral wouldn't be too expensive and it was kept fairly simple, but it still cost £100,000, which is, is a huge sum of money. And the funeral anthem was composed by the court composer Henry Purcell. There's so much else going on at the time that I could talk about, but I, I, I think when I've finished doing the monarchs, I can go back and look at some of these other figures through history. Mary has gone. William is still alive. He is now the sole ruler of Britain. And he carries on ruling and living for at least another 10 years. I do think it was very sad what happened to Mary. 
And I think, you know, the, the glimpses we've seen of her being a queen, she handled herself very well. She learnt very quickly. She learnt politics very quickly. She learnt how to handle the men around her very quickly. And she was very passionate and very bright and very aware of her position. She had so much going for her. And it was really down to her nature and strength and relationship with Parliament and the people that she was able to sell this idea of her and William replacing her father and for the country not to fall apart into another ruinous civil war. The Jacobites dismissed her as too bad a daughter and too good a wife. But I think our judgment on her needs to be much more nuanced than that. And to help me sort through all this, I'm delighted to say that we have the return of the historian Jonathan Healy to join me after the break. So make sure you join me too. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, and welcome back to Jonathan Healy, who we had on before to talk about Oliver Cromwell. And to remind you... Jonathan is the author of The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England, and the central event in the reigns of William and Mary, and indeed of James II, is what has become known as the Glorious Revolution. So let's start with that, Jonathan. I have to ask you, one, was it glorious? And two, was it really a revolution? Well, I mean, it's a brilliant question. And it is one of these things where what you might call the sort of gotcha school of history, which I I find very, very tedious, which is where um, <laughs> someone sort of says, oh, you know, Glorious Revolution was terribly important. And then the, the gotcha is, well, you know, all it was was a foreign invasion. And, and actually it was just the Dutch coming over here and invading and, you know, taking control of the country. But I think, I mean, that is part of it. But it was also a political revolution and a very, very important one. Glorious, obviously, I mean, that's... In the eye of the beholder a, a little bit what part of the reasoning that it is glorious is that in england at least it's relatively peaceful bloodless they used to say although there was a bit of a fight in reading at one point so it wasn't even completely bloodless in england so who was fighting in reading well the soldiers of james ii were fighting against the soldiers of william of orange um, so there was a bit of a skirmish and then of course in scotland it's quite bloody and it leads directly to things like the glencoe massacre yeah. Um, and in Ireland, of course, it's hugely violent. And of course, there's a there's a big war in Ireland, which sort of culminates in the Battle of the Boyne. So to say it's glorious and bloodless is a very Anglo-centric perspective, of course, which is only part of the story. But in England, James did avoid conflict. And I guess William was very keen to avoid a major battle if he could. It wouldn't have been a good start to slaughter a load of English people. But I mean, did it come close to warfare? 
the Dutch army has landed in Devon and has sort of marched through um, England. It's got to Salisbury Plain. Eventually, the Royal Army has basically kind of melted away. James has tried to run away. He then ends up in Faversham in Kent, where he gets recognised or he gets... he. He gets sort of pulled up by a Kentish fisherman who thinks he looks terribly suspicious. So he has his underpants um, rifled through. He's the only king to ever have his <laughs> pants rifled by a French fisherman. And then he comes back to London. Is that considered the end of the revolution? So there's the invasion and the chaos that that causes. Um, but then there's also when James actually does manage to flee the country, there's a whole question about what's coming next. And that you know, we should really see that as part of the the revolution, because what essentially happens is that Parliament, they invite William to become king and therefore give themselves that sort of ultimate power over the monarchy. And you end up with, you know, a constitutional monarchy. And it sort of clarifies that that's what we have at this point. So, so technically... Who is revolting against who? Well, (laughs) I mean, I think the easiest way to think of it is that in late 1688, there is a lot of political dissatisfaction with James II and a group within English political society basically rebels against James. And in order to do that, they sort of dress it up as, you know, we are uh, worried about where this country's going. Um, But essentially what they have to do is they have to write to William of Orange and say, please, Mm. can you intervene? They're not necessarily at this point saying, please bring an army across or please, you know, take the crown. They're certainly not saying that. But what they are saying is um, things are going badly wrong in England and in Scotland and Ireland. Um, Please come over and sort us out. So the revolution is Parliament revolting against the king, as it were. And they then get William in as a tool. Yeah, I mean, that's a fairly... That's a not completely inaccurate way of thinking about it. Yeah. Are you just politely telling me <laughs> no, but I think, the time I think, that I'm talking bollocks? Well, no, but I don't think it is bollocks. And I think the, I think the point is it's, that's quite a traditional view of it. And obviously, you know, historians sort of moved away from that a little bit. And one thing that we do nowadays is we see it a lot more in the context of what's going on on the continent. And you know, why is William of Orange right. interested? Because that's quite important. But fundamentally, <laughs> it is basically what happens. There, there is, you know, there's a, a Stuart monarch who falls foul of their parliament and their political nation. And so they they kick him out. It's quite hard to get away from that ultimately. <laughs> So we'll look at why William wanted to go through this in a minute. But can we just look at Mary and her part in all this? What was she up to? Because essentially she'd toppled her own father, hadn't she? Yeah, I mean, there's a religious element to it, I think, um, in the sense that because she's a Protestant and James is a Catholic. I mean, she has been married to William of Orange for quite some time. He's not necessarily a particularly likeable guy, so I I don't think she had any particular great love for him, to be quite honest. Yes, well, I mean, uh, we looked at how her sister Anne called him the Dutch abortion. Well, yes, and uh, and it's possible that her sexual proclivities were in different directions. It is entirely possible that she might not have been particularly sexually attractive. I mean, he's not a particularly attractive guy in lots and lots of ways. But she is also quite ambitious, I think, think and she probably wants to protect her fellow Protestants. It is a time when there is a presupposition of loyalty for a wife to their husband. And so I think, you know, I think she is quite happy to go along with it. The Stuart family is very complicated and (laughs) they're all quite interrelated. And of course, William and Mary are both cousins as well. Yes. Um, So 
you know, very close. There's that, you know, maybe her loyalty to her cousin was greater than her loyalty to James, whatever. But they're not always a family who are characterized by deep familial bonds of love and affection let's put it that way um so in some ways it's i i think it's less surprising than you might think ultimately and they had been sort of estranged for a while i mean james yeah. hadn't really seen much of her after she left england had he no 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 the other thing is that william and mary had become a sort of focal point for dissidents from england uh, and Scotland actually coming over in the reign of James the James. In fact, actually going going a bit before that, back to the reign of Charles II. If you sort of fell foul of the English government, and you know one of the classic examples is someone like John Locke, for example, political mm. philosopher who ends up bullied out of Oxford by all these royalists, all these Tories, and basically kind of forced to go and, and live in in the Netherlands. But there's also people like the old Leveller, John Wildman, who's one of the Leveller radicals from the civil war he'd been at the Putney debates and he's now quite old and and you know quite sort of um well established but he's still very very radical um and he ends up going and living there so there's a sort of there's like a kind of court in exile of um as well you know it goes back to before Monmouth's rebellion where Monmouth had been there in exile as well so that there is definitely sort of you know rival groups within the Stuart dynasty on the one hand there's the, the ones in, in uh, around James. And on the other hand, there's the ones around Elizabeth and they don't see eye to eye. Uh, but also we've had this period of the Anglo-Dutch wars. Mm. And I've always slightly struggled to get my head around the idea that one minute they're going to war and then the next it's, well, will you marry my daughter kind of thing. Yeah, there are connections between the Orange family and the Stuart family which go back. Yeah. Um, quite a way. And I think the, the way to think of it is that whilst there is a period of warfare between the British and, and the Dutch, from about, ooh, let's say, 1674 onwards, it starts to become quite clear that the interests of the English in particular are in opposing the French because the French are becoming so powerful under yeah, the 14. Yeah. Um, and then there's so there's a bit of a kind of turnaround, basically. And it's after the Third Dutch War finishes in 1674 that this marriage uh, takes place. And it's, and it's supposed to be a sort of great coup of a guy called the Earl of Danby, who's that, he's basically like the first prime minister, really. A very interesting guy, a man who has more political lives than a cat. And in fact, when he was a, a kind of young child, his, his house had fallen down upon him. Um, and because he'd been playing with the family cat, he was actually out of the bit where the chimney fell down and he, so he would have been killed. So he was saved by a cat. Anyway, and th this guy... Um, <laughs> is a sort of, you know, a sort of proto-Tory, basically, um, kind of, you know, loyalist, pro-Stuart. His big thing is pushing the Protestant interest and pushing English kind of trading interests. So he, he wants to move away from the war against the Dutch, move towards the Dutch. So rather than fighting each other over trade, the idea is to actually mutually benefit each other yeah. through trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to deal with the Dutch side of things and the geopolitical aspects more in the next episode when we'll look at William himself. So to focus on Mary for a moment and to go from big international politics to personal politics, you alluded to Mary's sexuality before. And I know it's a very modern preoccupation, but what do we know about Mary's relationship with women? 
Obviously, there was this curious episode when she was young, writing these letters to this older girl, Frances Apsley. And there were also these accusations against William, weren't there? I admittedly made by Jacobites trying to undermine him, but, but claiming he was homosexual. I mean, was their marriage a bit of a sham? Do we give any credence to the rumours about Mary possibly being a lesbian and William being a homosexual? I mean, I don't see why not. You know, it's, it's, it makes for a better TV it, drama. It does, it does. And, it, you know, it, it wouldn't have been the first uh, or indeed the last not particularly intimate marriage amongst royals. So I, I honestly mm. don't see why not. You know, I think previous generations of historians were possibly a little bit sort of prurient of, uh, about it. But, you know, there's all that kind of question about whether or not in this period there is such a thing as a kind of um, gay identity basically because people yeah. tended to think about homosexual acts rather than homosexuality yes. as an identity but it's quite interesting that it, it's almost exactly at this point in in our history in london that you start to get what are called molly houses so they're basically kind of you know essentially kind of early gay bars and mm. there is a sort of gay subculture developing in london at this point and it it sort of creates a kind of furious backlash with people like the society for the reformation of manners who basically kind of organize these vigilante groups who go and prosecute people in london yes. or, the, the, the society for the prevention of this sort of you, thing well, basically yes yeah yeah down <laughs> with this sort of thing kind of society yeah and and, and actually william's quite supportive of those because he's a he's a sort of you know, old right. dutch calvinist he's got quite a puritanical element to it so yeah, it's, there's a lot of complexity there. Is there any evidence beyond the letters that she wrote when she was younger in, in later life? I mean, it seemed to me that Anne had a lot of very close, mm. influential relationships with women, whereas from my very superficial yeah, research, yeah. I, I haven't seen similar evidence about No, her. no, I'm not aware of any, but then there's probably people who right. know it better than I do. But of course, you know, Anne is very, <laughs> Anne very famously, you know, with um, Sarah yes. Churchill, yeah. obviously, very famous, very close relationship. There is, of course, at this base, it, it's so hard as us as historians as well, because there's, there's a lot of traditions of kind of platonic love between people, particularly sort of classically trained people, classically educated mm. people. Um, so it can be a little bit hard to really work out what's going on. And, and there's a whole question as to how useful it is for us to impose our ideas about identity on, on people back then who probably thought in very, very different ways. But yeah, equally, I don't see it as impossible at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mary did seem to sort of overdo her pronouncements of how much she loved William and get sort of quite theatrical about it in a way that sort of seems slightly trying to cover up a darker truth. I think that's a behaviour you can see sometimes in abusive marriages mm. where the wife's saying, oh, I love him so mm. much, he's, he's, he's my whole life. But behind it, the things are not so happy at all. Yeah, there's also, I mean, it has a sort of real political resonance as well because after James had fled in 1689, one serious suggestion is that Mary is in, because, you know, she's actually got a much stronger claim to the throne than William. And so she could possibly have been brought in as a queen regnant. But between the two of them, they say, no, this is not acceptable. If, if it's not William, then William's going to go home and he's just going to leave you guys to it. Um, and so it's that which then eventually leads 
to the invite for for William to um, to become king. So they are sort of working together in that regard. But, we, you know, you don't quite know how she felt uh, uh, about it. Maybe she would have quite fancied being queen. <laughs> um, and in the end, the sort of, you know, the, the kind of the fudge that they are William and Mary, that it's not just William mm. with his queen, it's William and Mary, does kind of reflect that a little bit. So one of her courtiers said, oh, she's like a new Queen Elizabeth. And she certainly seemed to show promise. She quickly learnt the ropes in how to deal with these parliamentarians around her. And and I know we're not supposed to play the what-if game, but it does seem a real shame that she was taken so early with smallpox mm. and that given the chance to properly go for it, she seemed to me like she might have been one of our better monarchs. Mm. But, I mean, it, I mean, the other side to that is that after the Glorious Revolution there is basically a kind of huge drop in the relevance of the monarchy, if you say the sense. Um, and that is partly because of William's character, but because he is a bit tetchy and difficult. He hates London. So he moves his court out from Whitehall Palace, which then burns down, to uh, Kensington Palace. And of course, he spends a, a huge portion of his reign over in uh, on the continent fighting his many wars. And that means that the sort of institutions of government in England have to basically find a way of running effectively without the king or queen being there. And so you start to get this kind of much more modern system whereby government essentially kind of reports to parliament and ministers are not in constant contact with the king. They're much more in contact with parliament, which is sitting permanently, sitting every single year. Um, and it has complete control over the um, the king's revenue because you get the, this is when you get the civil list. So in some ways, we're kind of closer to the age of Elizabeth II than we are to the right. now because um, there has been this big change and partly that seems to be that William wasn't necessarily that interested excited about ruling England what he wanted was what England could give yeah. him I'd, yeah and that he didn't seem to be too bothered about signing away some of his rights to get that and that he, he seemed to be quite happy ruling via a government rather than by royal decree. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's not that interested. I mean, he's Dutch and he doesn't really give <laughs> a shiny shite about the finer points of the English constitution. Yeah. As long as it gives him what he needs, which is soldiers to go and fight Louis XIV, yeah. um, he doesn't mind. Great. Well, that's the perfect point to finish this episode, as we'll be getting on to William in our next episode. Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, joining me again to talk about Mary today. And are you okay to come back in the next episode and help us navigate? Well, I would love to. Yes, thank you. Excellent. So make sure you join me and Jonathan for the next episode where we look at the other side of the coin. Actually, it's the same side of the coin. William and Mary appeared on the coins with their faces in profile, sort of slightly overlapping. But yes. In the next episode, we get the Dutch perspective as we look at the life of our third Willie, William III. Follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Willie Willie Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willie Willie Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.